They already know it, but kids are dismissed to Children's Church. <laughs> Just in case anybody is new and wondering, why are all the kids running out? Uh, they're supposed to do that. We are in week three of a series that we're doing on this book. Uh, it's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And uh, this book is by an author named John Mark Comer. And uh, I really enjoyed reading it when it first came out a couple years ago. And so uh, I thought it would be a good way to lead into the Advent season this year. So Advent starts next weekend, uh, which is a church uh, time of the year in the church calendar when we wait expectantly. Um, I'll probably use the picture again, but there's my favorite picture is this picture I have of Journey when she was probably like two years old or so. And she is standing on her tiptoes, looking out the window, waiting for my sister to come back. And that just grabbed me as the picture of Advent, of waiting and expectancy. And so we start that next week. But also part of Advent is uh, waiting and not being in a hurry to get to Christmas. And I don't know about you, but so many of my friends already have their Christmas stuff up, right? I don't know if you've been in any stores recently, but it feels like since about August, there's been Christmas stuff in the stores. And so we have a hard time as a culture of slowing down and waiting. And so just wanted to focus on that. And today we're going to continue to do that. Um, in a past life, right, I worked in a commercial kitchen. And uh, before that, um, and during that time, I really thought that I wanted to be a chef of some kind. Like that's what I thought I wanted to do. Uh, I still enjoy cooking. I've always liked to. Um, but I realized along the way that uh, number one, to become a legitimate chef, you have to go through a pretty rough decade of employment before you get anywhere. And then number two, God did this thing where he said, nah, you're not doing that. You're doing this other thing. So, but one thing I noticed along the way uh, was that the really good cooks that I've been around or worked with, both in the commercial setting, but also in the home setting, uh, really good cooks have something in common. And this is uh, true with, again, home cooks as well, and it's uh, largely true to any kind of trade or craft that requires a skill. And there's a sense in which part of what we're doing as we apprentice under Jesus is learning the skill of being present with God, right? We're, we're practice. That's why we call them spiritual practices. And, and so um, if you if cook at home, you know this, but there's a huge market uh, this time of year, it really goes into overdrive. There's a huge market in the kind of chef and home cook world for kitchen gadgets, right? How many of you have that drawer that like won't open or close all the way because there's so much stuff in it that are like gadgets? Me too. I got it too. Uh, the, there are little gadgets for every little task in the kitchen, right? There's like all these weird little things that you can buy and they're so convincing in the marketing. They really get us. Uh, now, I'm not trying to like bash anybody or attack anybody for using these. Um, I have some too. I, I repent. I admit it. But there are some people who I swear think that the more kitchen gadgets they have, the better of a cook they're going to be. Right? Oh, well, a lot of more nodding heads than I thought on that one. Or let me take it to another domain, okay? Another realm of a past life, right? Guitars. Now, I still play guitar. I like guitars. Uh, my wife knows this better than anyone in here. This is why I waited to do this illustration second so she'd be gone. Um, <laughs> but there was a time when I was totally caught up in guitar gear. And I can see myself going back there. But there was a time when I was completely caught up. So much so that people who work at guitar stores, who knew me by the first name, uh, would say that I had what we call gear assimilation syndrome, or GAS for short. 
Okay, that's a joke in the guitar in the guitar music world. Uh, this is the guy who thinks he needs every kind of like device. You know, I have a few effects pedals up here, but every kind of effects pedal um, that you could have. And you see these guys, especially in like the worship music world. If you go to a concert or, or to a church with a big band, they'll have like this huge pedal board down on the bottom with all these things. You're like, what are they tapping with their feet? Uh, what they're tapping with their feet are effects pedals. And there's guys who think the more of those I can buy, the better gear I can get, the better I'm going to play. And again, there's a similarity with that with any trade you can think of. Uh, get around, you know, carpenters. Get around mechanics, right? Mechanics, it's a snap-on guy pulling, pulling up with all the tools. Tom's nodding his head, right? It's, or, or the craftsman tools, right? It's, we, we have this desire to, to get all these gadgets. But the, the great chefs and the great guitarists don't actually need any of that. They, they don't actually need any of that. And in fact, really great chefs and really great guitar players will often take pride in the simplicity of what they need to be good at what they're doing. Uh, a great chef really needs like five or six things to make a great dish. He needs great ingredients. He needs a couple of good pots and pans. He needs a good knife or two. And he needs something to cook on. That's about it. I mean, like, I could take you to, to some neighborhoods where people are cooking on, like, outdoor homemade, like, barbecue grill things, and their food is killer. And they don't, they just need a few things, right? A great guitarist really just needs a good, decent guitar and an amplifier and skills, and they can make that thing sing, right? Carlos Santana, he's got one tone, but it's a great tone, Okay. Great guitarist just needs a few things. Now, the reason I share this example is that it, I think, connects us to the third of the four sort of practices that we find in this book for dealing with what we've been talking about, which is hurry. And so we've been making the case along with the book that hurry is the great uh, enemy of our souls, that in order to truly be able to even try and live the life with Jesus that he's calling us into, the life of love, joy, and peace that we all actually want, uh, that uh, we must practice eliminating hurry from our lives, okay? Now, just by way of reminder, this is what we mean by hurry, right? We, what we don't mean is that as followers of Jesus, we have nothing to do. That's not what we mean. This isn't a call to laziness, right? The Bible has plenty to speak about that. Don't be the sloth. When I was young, I used to have that written on my desk at my first job at my first church because I was kind of lazy. And I needed to be reminded, don't be lazy. We, we, what it doesn't mean is that we just sit at home all day, every day, doing nothing, just, you know, praying and that's it. That's not what it means. Jesus himself, read the Gospels, is busy. He has a lot of things to do. He's working. He's ministering. And, and we've seen that there are times when Jesus and the disciples are doing so much that they didn't even have time to eat a meal, right? But Jesus didn't live his life this way as the norm. He didn't constantly stay in a hurry all the time with no breaks at all. As we've been saying, the issue is that as followers of Jesus, we are uncritically adopting the hurried ways of this world, the way of life that our culture lives in, and we haven't realized the detrimental effect that this is having on our souls. We're going to get to this later uh, this morning, but this is a form of worldliness that we don't even recognize. Listen to this summary. This is from Michael Zigarelli. This is page 22 in this book. He says, it may be the case that one 
Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and the cycle begins again. What's he saying? It's a snowball effect. It's a snowball effect, right? So that's the summary of the problem that we want to be aware of and tackle. And so today, we're going to cover the the last two of the four, but by way of covering just one of those two. Now, the reason we're going to start with it and basically focus on simplicity is because if if we grasp simplicity, life will inherently slow down a little bit. That's just true. If we live a simpler life, we will live a slower life. And kind of COVID forced a lot of us into this. We were living a simpler life because we had to. Now, maybe we were, you know, kicking at it and hated it, but we were living a simpler life. And I would guess that most of you would say that at least for a small period of time, your life got a little bit slower. Mine did, for sure. I just like, there wasn't a mall to go to. I couldn't go out to eat. So I was just like at home being slow. And so to live a simple, quiet life of love, joy, and peace present to God and others actually is the good life. That desire you have that's insatiable, that you're like, there's got to be something more that you go and look for things for, that desire actually is, should be placed on living a life in the presence of God with him in your life forever. Uh, in fact, Ecclesiastes says that he made you for that, that he wrote eternity on your heart, and that's what it is. In fact, in the, in the uh, epistle to the Thessalonian church in, church in chapter 4, uh, the Apostle Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet and simple life. Make it your ambition. You have to try to do this. It's kind of like holiness. I don't know about you, but I don't just fall into holiness. I have to put effort in based on what Christ has done for me. Now, again, here's kind of the the rub, right? A a complex life of consuming and and accumulating many possessions has to, by its nature, become a speedy life marked by hurry. Like if you're always accumulating the next thing, you're going to always have to be moving faster and faster. This is the classic American dream, right? We assume that more and more is normal. This This is the thing. We assume that more and more is the normal, just the way the universe works. We don't even think about it. This is the fish not realizing that water is wet because they're just in it. This is just the air we breathe. And so we blink and we're midlife super busy because we haven't stopped to think about whether or not the norms that we're living by that we just assume are actually good for us. And so we're reacting to life. We're not being proactive. And so let's just dig into simplicity for a little bit. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke 12. It's not a big deal. If you don't, I'm going to read it for you. But in Luke chapter 12, we see Jesus kind of doing a little bit of a Q&A. He's fielding questions from people. And someone in the crowd asks him a question about inheritance. So they're basically saying, hey, uh, can you help my brother and I decide who should get the money and the inheritance? And the first thing Jesus says is like, that's none of my business. I'm not the judge of that. But then Jesus offers them a warning in the form of a parable, okay? And I want you to listen to this parable, and I'm going to point a couple things out. It says Luke 12, verses 16b 
through 21. Luke 12, starting in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So he has too much stuff. Okay? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So for our purposes today, this is a man who has laid up for himself things that he doesn't need, right? He's got that room in his house with junk that he doesn't use anymore, right? He's got the drawer in the kitchen counter that's got all the junk in it that we eh, probably don't need that little garlic crusher thing, but we just have it, right? Those are nice stuff. Now, for today, what I want to do is highlight two verses, one right before that parable and one right after it. Because I think they're so perfect for what we're talking about. Listen to the lesson. This is the lesson Jesus is illustrating with that parable. So he says an axiom, a truth kind of of the universe. And then he goes on and explains it with the parable. Here's the lesson he says. Take care to these two brothers who are fighting about inheritance. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, jealousy, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If there's one phrase in the Bible that is the antithesis of the American way of life, it is that. Your life is not made meaningful by your stuff. Your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So notice what Jesus says. He says, be careful that your stuff doesn't define you. Now, here's why this is important. This, it's easy for us to notice, uh, if it was easy for us to notice that our life is being defined by stuff, Jesus wouldn't say, watch this, be careful, be on your guard, pay attention, right? Because that's what he says. Take care, be on your guard, watch out for this. Why do we need to pay attention to it? Why does Jesus need to say, hey, be careful, watch out for this? Because this is subtle, and we would argue as Christians, this is a subtle scheme of our enemy, the devil. It's the same lie that he used in the garden to deceive the first two humans, Adam and Eve. In the garden, he said, did God really say you can't eat of the tree? And here, to us, through our, the lie of our culture... He's saying, is there really anything wrong with buying stuff I don't need? It's not wrong. Feel the insidiousness of that. That's the same lie. Did God, it's not really wrong to just take a bite of the fruit, right? This is what we tell ourselves. This is the lie from our enemy, the devil, whose, whose weapon is lies that we believe. It's not really wrong, right? It's not really wrong to get stuff that I don't need and accumulate more things. And the thing is, we're not even that aware of what we're doing. We're not even asking that question. We're just assuming it's just normal. And so Jesus is warning us that this is an area of our lives that we must open our eyes to. We are walking around blind to this. We must pay attention 
And then right after this parable, Jesus says this, and this is why context in your Bible reading is so important. This is right after what he just said about wealth and accumulating stuff. Verse 22 of the same chapter, then he said to his disciples, therefore, so because of what I just said, now this, therefore I tell you, do not be what? Anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is not your possessions. He just said that. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Now, food and clothing are good, beautiful gifts from God, aren't they? It's not that they're not. That's not what he's getting at. So, so is there then, is there a connection between a life marked by and filled with hurry and the rise in our Western world in anxiety? Is there a connection? Seems like there probably is. But the reason we don't notice it is the same reason that Jesus had to say, pay attention. Watch out for this. It's the air we breathe. We don't even know it. As a kid growing up in the church, I grew up in a church just like this one. Right? My daughter runs in here like she owns the place. I ran around that place like I own the place. I crawled under the pews one Sunday, and the pastor picked me up and just kept going. Right? Which, based on how many of you are watching my little daughter, I might just want to do that so you can just get a better view anyway. Okay? Listen, i got to preach with her right there. you got to pay attention with her right there. So it's our deal. So as a kid growing up in the church, I can remember the constant call to avoid worldliness. And that's a right and good call. We should avoid worldliness. We should... Put sin to death. We're supposed to, as followers of Jesus, look different from the world around us. We're even called a peculiar people in the King James Version of Peter's first letter. You're a royal nation, a peculiar people, he says. And so I was taught what? Don't drink. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Don't smoke. Even some things like don't play cards. Don't go to the movies. Don't dance. That's worldliness. Don't do that. And there is wisdom in that. Don't hear me bashing all of that. There is wisdom in that. But when it came to these kind of teachings from Jesus about wealth and materialism, we we weren't focused on that. And what I believe has happened is that we've developed a big blind spot for the worldliness of hurry and success and material things. We just don't see them as the problem that Jesus sees them as. They're just normal. They're just part of our life. We don't even notice that we're living just like everyone else around us, right? I mean, it's a classic example. I've said it a hundred times. The first thing you say after someone says, how are you, is I'm busy. Like, that's good. Why is that good? I heard a preacher last week talking about this, and he said, I want to dare you to do something. Next time someone says, I'm busy, when you say, how are you, ask them why. And, and see the conversation take a little halt, right? Why are you busy? And so we don't even notice that we're living just like everyone else around us. And then when we end up being just as anxious as everyone else around us, we question why is God allowing this to happen? But what if Jesus was actually right about this? What if as our rabbi, he's actually correct? What if Jesus is right that possessions don't define us? That my life is not made valuable by the abundance of my possessions. What if we, without realizing it, are running to the very things to find love, joy, and peace that are actually stealing our love, joy, and peace? But the reason that talking like this can make us squirm in our seats a little bit 
and start to look for reasons where probably some of you are doing exactly what I did when I first read this book and what I continue to do. Yeah, but I mean, come on, it's not that bad. Right? Start to self-justify why this isn't true, that this message of a simple, quiet life uh, runs totally counter to every piece of marketing you see. That's why. The reason that you're like, I don't know about this, is because you're being discipled by every piece of marketing that you see. Every commercial, every time your iPhone shows you an ad in Facebook that you're like, I didn't ask for that. I was just talking about that the other day. Is it listening to me? It is. Right? Every time you see that, it's aimed at this lie from our enemy, that more stuff will lead to the good life. And we could go on, right? Or more vacation, or more power, or more whatever. Sometimes it's direct, sometimes it's very subtle, that if we just get this one more thing, then we'll be satisfied, which then leads to what? What does that actually lead to? Like, go back and think about your life and ask, what does that actually mean? lead to. We have to spend more hours that we already don't have to make more money to get that thing. And now life is both more complex and more in a hurry. And we're actually drinking the Kool-Aid of the cult of materialism. And we don't even know it. Listen to this quote from page 181 and 182 of this book. It hasn't always been this way, even in America. Yes, our nation is a social experiment built around the pursuit of happiness, but it wasn't until quite recently that we redefined happiness as making lots of money and owning lots of stuff. In 1927, one journalist observed this about America. A change has come over our democracy. It is called consumptionism. We might say consumerism. The American citizen's first importance to his country is now no longer that of citizen, but that of consumer. So much so that one example given in this book is after 9-11, right, September 11th happens, the holiday season arrives, and what does the president tell us to do? Go shopping. Why? What's that about? That's about getting us to buy into the lie, once again, that more things will make us feel better. And it's about propping up our economy. But, but underneath that is that lie. So, so then, what are we actually supposed to do? How do we respond, right? Because you're just going to walk out of here and be like, oh, man. How do we respond now that we're paying attention and hopefully have our eyes open to this issue? Well, simply put, we follow the way of Jesus. And what that doesn't mean is believe only that Jesus saved you. It does mean that, but it also means what Jesus said, obey all that I have commanded you and walk in his way of life. Follow the way of Jesus. Be like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. So we live as if we live as he would live if he were us, and that means that we strive to live simply and intentionally. We live on purpose. What we're not saying is that stuff is evil. Creation is good. We can say both of these things. That having things is not inherently wrong. There's a whole theology of poverty that itself is wrong. That to be more holy means you have to be inherently poor. And that's just not true. But also to be rich isn't a sign of God's blessings on you. Neither one of those are True, there's a different way to be human. And so what we're not saying is that stuff is evil. Everything you have is a good gift from God. We read that from James. But what we are saying is that the problem is, uh, is, is this. 
One, we put no limit on stuff due to our insatiable human desire for more. This is from the book. And two, we think that we need all sorts of stuff, all sorts of things to be happy when in actuality we need very few. You actually don't need that many things to be happy. Right? Some of the happiest kids I ever met were living in an orphanage in the mountains of Argentina and they had nothing. And they were full of joy. And as Christians who are following Jesus, what we have to come to terms with is that we simply cannot have both. We want to have both, but you cannot have both. We cannot have a deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus, the kind that if you run into a person who has that, you say, I want that. We can't have that kind of relationship with Jesus that transforms us into a people of holiness and love and joy and peace and at the same time pursue a life that's always in a hurry to make more money to buy more stuff. They will not work together. Jesus taught this over and over. He said you cannot serve both God and money. You can't. You can try, but it's not going to work. And I might argue that you cannot pursue God and hurry because the reality is that everything we buy costs us not only money, but also time. Either time to make that money or time to use the thing that we didn't need anyway. So then, the solution to too much stuff is a posture change about stuff itself. Again, we're not saying that, that inherently any and all stuff is bad. We're just saying that more stuff is not inherently good for us and it's not neutral. That to just go with the flow is leading you down a road away from God. So then part of pursuing a life with Jesus is letting go of that and keeping our eyes, right? The book of Hebrews, fix your eyes on Jesus and let go of not only the sin, but everything else that hinders you. And we pursue a life of simplicity in him. Now, in the book, Comer, the author, uh, uses, uh, you might know the, the more in vogue term of minimalism. That's basically a secular version of simplicity. Uh, but in this book, he uses those two terms kind of interchangeably. So just take note of that if you read the book. And here's a great thought-provoking question for us. What if you only had what you needed and there wasn't anything to organize? You ever thought about that? So I just think even in my kitchen, what if I actually only had the pans I actually needed? There wouldn't be anything to organize because I'd have like three. Now I'd have to wash them a lot more often, but there would only be a few things. So again, no one's saying we shouldn't have anything, but that we should have what we need. Think of the time that this would free you up so that you could then be spending time truly present to God and present to others around you. So, so here are some definitions of minimalism slash simplicity from this book that I think are really helpful. Minimalism or simplicity can be defined as the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. So for us as Christians, the thing that we most value is life with God. So we remove everything that distracts us from that. Another one. Simplicity is an inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle of choosing to leverage time, money, talents, and possessions toward what matters most. And what matters most is life with God, present communing with God, drawing others into that. 
And in order to do that, you have to live a simple life. And lastly, this is from St. Francis de Sale, who was the Bishop of Geneva, once said this, in everything, love simplicity. So what I want to leave you with today is just a very practical list of steps from this book that are just at least interesting to think about, if not implement a few of. There's 12 of them. Don't feel like this is another task. That would add more hurry to your life. That's like the opposite of what we want. But what we're doing here, the the end game of all of this is to get more presence with Jesus, right? The end game of any spiritual discipline isn't the discipline itself. The end game of it is to get you more Jesus, to be present with Jesus, not to do the practice for the practice sake, certainly not to take on more practices without eliminating unnecessary things from your life because then you're now more in a hurry, right? All of this is about the invitation from Jesus we have seen over and over, even in Jesus's great commission. We've said this a bunch of times, but when he says, go into all the world, the language there actually is saying, as you are going. So Jesus isn't adding more things on your life. He's saying, recenter the hub of your life around me. You're already living. You're already going. Now just do it with me. And this is the invitation from Jesus that we've said a few times over this series. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I won't give you a to-do list. I will give you rest. There's work to do, though. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. That's the only self-description Jesus ever gives of himself in the scriptures. He's gentle and lowly. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is life. So how do we practice this? Well, first, I just want to invite you, if you haven't already, grab this book, read it, okay? Read it at your convenience. Don't make it an extra thing that then stresses you out more. Find a way to rearrange something, eliminate something, and read this. There's so many more things in here for you than I could cover in a three-week series, But there's a workbook to go along with this called How to Unhurry that the author of this book also wrote. If you want a copy of it, you can do one of two things. You can, I'm giving you permission right now, pull your phone out, go to our church website right now, and right on the homepage, there's a button that says How to Unhurry Workbook. Click on that, you'll get it. Uh, If that's too much for you, you can come up to me during the lunch, ask me, and I'll text it to you, or I'll show it to you. I'll, I'll get it to you somehow, okay? So I hope you'll dive deeper into this, especially as we move into the Advent season especially as we move into the Advent season. This practice in particular can become a helpful resistance and a witness to the world around you, that there's a different way to be human. I don't live my life the same way as everybody else. And then what does Peter say? People are gonna ask you for a reason for the hope that's in you. But before we go today, here's 12 things, 12 practical practices or ideas to practice simplicity, specifically when it comes to material things. Is there anybody running slides right now or no? Okay, Devin, I can't, I can't see her back there. Thank you, Devin. Number one, before you buy something, ask yourself, what is the true cost of this item? Both in money and in time, right? Like a friend of mine just got himself a motorcycle, which sounds awesome, right? A little jealous. But there's a time associated with that, right? You gotta ride the thing, so that takes time. You got to fix it when it breaks. That takes time. So think about that anytime you're buying something. Not only do I really need this, but what's it actually going to cost me? 
Number two, before you buy, ask yourself, by buying this, am I oppressing the poor or harming the earth? Now, this will take you down a deep, deep hole, especially when it comes to our clothing, right? If I say the two words fast fashion in front of her, she's going to not like it. But it's a question we as followers of Jesus, we're, we're called to care for the creation and to care for the poor. And that happens when we buy things. Number three. Oh, man, I hate this one. Never impulse buy. It's a rough one. It's a rough one, right? Don't impulse buy. Number four, when you do buy, opt for fewer, better things. Fewer, better things. Number five, when you can share, this is that saying, don't build higher fences, build longer tables. Don't build higher fences, build longer tables. Number six, get into the habit of giving things away. Some of you in this church are very good at this. You're very good at this. This is a practice. Number seven, again, this goes with the impulse buying, which is probably why I react to this one. Live by a budget. Live by a budget. In the Proverbs, it commands us to know how many are in our flock. That's a call to know what's going on. Number eight, Learn to enjoy things without owning them. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. That's a tough one. Number nine, cultivate a deep appreciation for creation. Hikes are free. Right? They don't take money. You just go on a hike. Number 10, cultivate a deep appreciation for the simple pleasures, like just a nice cup of coffee. Simple. Number 11, recognize advertising for what it is, propaganda. Call out the lie. Most of the advertising you see is exactly that. It is not done in good faith to serve you the consumer. It's propaganda to get you to believe a lie and squeeze money out of you that you don't have to spend on that. So know it for what it is. And then number 12, I love this one, lead a cheerful, happy revolt against the spirit of materialism. Be a rebel. Rebel against the ways of this world. Don't be in a hurry. Don't live your life marked by hurry. Let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for giving us the time to spend this morning. I pray now that as we have a meal together, that we would enjoy it together. And we would just see your goodness in, in giving us this moment of a, a glimpse into what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Jesus, thank you for um, the people that are in this room and the people that are watching. I just ask that you would continue to put these thoughts in our hearts and our minds as we leave from here today and go back to our lives, that we would look for ways to live simpler lives, that maybe there are little things we can just say no to in order to spend more time just being present with ourselves and with you. And through that, Father, would you grant us peace and love and joy. Those are the things we want in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.